Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. Hello, hello, Story Shapers. It's time once again for another episode of the podcast that brings you through a guest's story-shaped life, giving you a peek at the books and stories they loved as a child or as a younger person, the ones that meant the most to them or scared the socks off them the fastest, and the stories in the broadest sense that have shaped their lives, their work and their hearts right from their earliest days. It's Story Shaped podcast time. And today, it's our absolute pleasure to welcome the fantastic, prolific, endlessly imaginative author Victoria Williamson to the podcast. Victoria was born and brought up in Kirkintilloch near Glasgow in Scotland, but has lived and worked all around the world as a teacher. She's been in Cameroon, Malawi and China, just to name three. Her books reflect this diversity, often featuring marginalised characters in starring roles and bearing the hallmarks of Victoria's experience, as well as her detailed research in making these characters and settings authentic and impactful. Her novel, The Boy with the Butterfly Mind, features a protagonist with ADHD, and her beautiful book, The Fox Girl and the White Gazelle, puts issues such as the plight of refugees front and centre. War of the Wind, which came out last year, features Max, a protagonist who is deaf as a result of an accident on a fishing boat, and whose hearing loss leads him to make an incredible discovery about sinister activity on the island on which he lives. Victoria's most recent book, The Pawn Shop of Stolen Dreams, is a fantastical, imaginative tale featuring sack babies, which are cheaper to buy than real children are to rent, apparently, adults falling into stupors and selling everything they have just to buy a daydream, and characters rejoicing in names like Florizel. Victoria's range as a writer is remarkable, and her books are always a joy, so I, for one, can't wait to get into her story-shaped life and find out just where these brilliant tales come from. So welcome to the podcast, Victoria. Thanks very much, Sinead. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Hello, you're welcome. It's great to have you. Um, so yeah, I really think the range of your books is, is amazing that you can write so effectively about a fantastical sort of, you know, uh, landscape as the one in Pawn Shop of Stolen Dreams. And yet you also handle with equal skill and I suppose sensitivity um, the stories of, of, you know, real life characters like Max in, in War of the Wind. Um, you know, I think I just I wondered how you have such a such a power and control over your over your material um you know um and I'd love to know I'm, I'm looking forward to learn more about the books that have helped you to become the, the kind of writer that you are today um uh, but I know I said your most recent book is The Pawn Shop of Stolen Dreams which you, you write so many books <laughs> it probably won't be the most recent one by the time the podcast comes <laughs> out <laughs> I know you have, a, you have a few you have a few books kind of coming up uh in in at the moment, haven't you? You've got your pawn shop is recently out. There's another three something, coming out this else. year. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. Been another three this year, so it's going to be a oh very, very busy autumn. My goodness me. Where do you get the time to do all this writing? <laughs> well, um, well, I suppose I just prioritise it above everything else. Yeah, you know, it's, that's amazing. I just love writing so much. It just seems to constantly come out whether I whether I'm sitting at my computer or not or not yeah and what else have you got coming up this year what's can you talk can you mention what they are or are they well they've yet? not been officially announced yet okay. so I'll just maybe give little teasers of them but um I've got one contemporary issue book coming out in the autumn and that's a dual narrative 
So it's kind of along the lines of The Boy with the Butterfly Mind and The Fox Girl and the White Gazelle. I've got an historical fiction book coming out, which is um, Scottish middle grade, and that's set in my hometown. So I'm very excited about that. It's going to be a Roman story. And I also have my debut YA novel coming out. So oh wow! I'm very that's excited great. about that too. So that's brilliant. It's going to be a very, very packed autumn. My gosh, I don't know. You're, you, I, I just, I'm, I'm staggered by your ability to get all this work done, and, and also to have all these amazing book deals, and to, you know, to have such a, a prolific career. It's incredible. Um, but as well as that, you know, I'm struck by when I'm reading through your your bio, kind of I'm inspired by your your activism, you know, because you, you tend to donate a lot of your royalties or part, you know, portions of your royalties to different charities and different, you know, to to sort of make the world a better place with with your with your with your work, I suppose. Um, and I was wondering what inspires activism like that. I mean, would would anything you have ever read or any stories you've ever read inspire activism like that, or where does it come from? This interest in I think improving more... the world kind of real life experiences as right. opposed to stories because I, I think I was very heavily into fantasy and science fiction growing up and <laughs> I think yeah. probably more real life just um my first real job was working in Cameroon with BSO for two years when I left university and I think just having the opportunity to go to different countries where I see you know I'm working as a teacher with all of these clever kids who I kind of know a lot of them wouldn't maybe have the same opportunities as me growing up even though someone probably a lot smarter and just thinking you know charities do like really really great work giving you know people opportunities to do things so I think it's just maybe that idea of giving a little bit back to try and you know help people achieve their own dreams as well you know yeah. for example the pawn shop of stolen dreams 20% of the royalties of that is going to charge our literacy which is an organization which does phonics training for um, teachers in Malawi so that they're in primary one and primary two equivalent uh, children or that would be sort of um, the first two years of primary school they do phonics training for the teachers so that the children can really learn to read and write well with a really really good basis in reading and writing because that's the fundamental of education really yeah so it's organizations like that that I like to donate to that I think you know are really going to give people that extra kind of chance in life to achieve their own dreams because I feel like I've had you know opportunities maybe to do that in my own life mm-hmm. you're right yeah the literacy is such a bit like it's, when I say it's a basic skill I mean it's it's an it's an easily I suppose an easily um, attainable skill if you give people the right tools you know if you give if you say if you, as you say if you train teachers how to do it it's such a it's, it's such a small thing but that can that can help a child's life to just blossom completely and as you say you know give them the power and the skills to to achieve whatever they they want to achieve you know it's it's an amazing thing to do so I'm, I'm really well done for that thank you very much for being such a an, an activist uh, as well as an author you're great um but as we kind of always begin our podcast we, we ask everybody the same question so uh, in the interest of beginning the podcast like that I'm going to say to you um are you story shaped um what do you think about that question I would say 100 yeah. <laughs> percent I mean my, my earliest memories are all bound up with stories um I think my parents had a huge huge part to play in me becoming an author um my mother used to read to me and my brothers literally every day when we were small, every single night. That was our bedtime routine would be a story, whether that was, I mean, she read The Hobbit to us when we were about seven, it was quite young. And then 
we loved it so much you went straight on to Lord of the Rings so I was eight years old when I heard the Lord of the Rings for the first time oh and she used to do all the voices so she, she had this really great kind of dramatic voice where she used to do all the voices for things and it was literally like going to the cinema or going to the theatre every single night so wow. it, would be, it would be like this performance almost we were sitting listening to and we would just get so excited over these stories and during the day I'd be sitting in school and both of my brothers were daydreamers but I had mastered a trick very very early on of sitting there looking like I was listening intently to the teachers when my brain was actually somewhere else completely so all the teachers used to say oh Victoria is so great she really concentrates I wasn't even there I mean, my brain was off somewhere else I was, you're off in Rivendell you know, in your exactly yeah. so I was always always making stories so I think having had that early spark when I was young of constantly making stories that really really helped and I was never a particularly good sleeper and that might seem like a bad thing but actually as a child you have to find something to you know keep your brain going at night while you're waiting to get to sleep and I would always be thinking of stories maybe the story we just heard my mother read and I think all of that just over the years it's like maybe like a muscle <laughs> you constantly yeah. um, exercise my father did something that was equally important I think he was never um, I think he was a little bit kind of shy about reading aloud because he wasn't a performer <laughs> you know the mm -hmm. way my mother was but um, he used to read stories himself all the time that would be his first thing you know he'd come home from work he'd kind of play with us a bit but his relaxation wasn't putting on the tv his relaxation was right get a book sit and read a book quietly he used to love that and he would talk to us about books all the time so I had this constant model of, oh, that that's what adults do for entertainment. They read books. So it wasn't a case of, oh, books are for small children. And then you get older and you watch TV. It was like, no, books mm -hmm. are for small children. And then when you get older, you read bigger books. Yeah. <laughs> and then we used to go to the library literally every weekend. So that, that was our main go-to place. And I loved the library. We had this old library where I grew up in Kirkintilloch that was, it was a, a house from the 1800s that was donated I think it was the late 1800s it was donated to um, Kirkintilloch by um, a family and it was this kind of old old house like normally you think of a library you think of like a council building no this was like an old proper family home and downstairs you had the reference library and you had the adult section and you went up this little twisty staircase <laughs> it's not very you know kind of access friendly but yeah. um, upstairs was a children's section and um, I used to love going there. It was, you know, in the autumn, it felt kind of spooky. You can imagine there were ghosts in the house. So <laughs> even just going to the library really kind of was an experience in itself. And um, I remember pretty much reading all of the stories in the children's section because it wasn't very big. You know, mm -hmm. if you think of like a house, you imagine yeah. a couple of bedrooms the all bedroom locked in together. Yeah, you know, yeah. You could, if you were a good reader, you could get through all of the books. <laughs> And um, I remember one day being about uh, probably 10 years old and my dad just said, look, well, here's my library card. Go and pick whatever you want from the adult section. And it was, and I've said this before, but it really was like getting my golden ticket because <laughs> <laughs> suddenly I had access to this adult world. And the books I read probably weren't very age appropriate. I read quite a lot of Stephen King <laughs> before secondary school wasn't really that appropriate. But my parents, for some reason, were really, really strict with what I watched on television. 
I think yeah. even watch Grange Hill. I don't know if you remember Grange Hill. I do remember Grange Hill. Yeah. <laughs> back yeah. in the eighties, wasn't even allowed to watch that, or even soap operas because that was considered no, no, that's not appropriate. But whatever books I wanted, it didn't matter. I could read anything I wanted. So it was access to this adult world through the written word, and I think that's quite powerful for a child. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think it's so, great, isn't it? I often think people, you know, you, you can't control, say something that's frightening, like Stephen King, you know, I read Stephen King too when I was probably too young, but, um, you know, you can kind of control the level of terror when it's your own imagination that's doing the kind of picturing of what's going on in the book, but when it's on screen, it's somebody else's imagining of it and you can't, you can't sort of stop it, you know, if it gets too much for you, you can't, you know, I, there's a photograph of me when I was a kid, we were watching Jaws, my, my brother's favourite film when we were young. Uh, even though he's younger than me, so he shouldn't have been watching it either. But there's a picture of me behind behind the cushion on the sofa and the absolute terror on my face as I'm trying to watch this movie. I'm like, oh my god, I don't want to, I don't want to watch this film, you know. But uh, when you're reading a book, you can you can you have much more control over over what you kind of put into your imagination. Um, and I I think it's really important to we talk sometimes about on the podcast about kids reading books that are quote unquote age inappropriate, but I think kids are great at knowing what they can take. You know, as in like they get they're great at knowing this is too much for me. I'm going to put it away for a while or you know, or I can, you know, I, you, that you can kind of mould what you're reading to suit, you know, to the level that you're at. Yeah, you know, so I think there's no, 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 no bad thing, you know, no bad reading for kids. But it's funny, I suppose we're kind of similar maybe in, in our, in our ages, you know, and we often say to the people from kind of our era, you know, there was no such thing as kind of YA books. And when you got to kind of, you know, upper, upper, I suppose, upper middle grade, as we call it, you know, into your teenage years, there wasn't really a whole lot that you could read, you know, between kind of kids books and then, you know, hopping. A lot of people say Stephen King. We must have all hopped into Stephen King as our first <laughs> sort of <laughs> adult book. Um, but do you, do you, do you, would you have a similar experience? Do you remember anything kind of, you know, teenage that you would have read when you were that age? Or I'm trying to think because I did pretty much graduate from, I mean, it was the case if you had the children's books for mm. kind of upper middle grade, kind of stopped towards upper middle grade and then you went straight to the adult section. Yeah, there yeah. was no literally because in that place it was upstairs was the kids section downstairs was the adult section so there was that separation yeah so you sort of felt like you were graduating from one <laughs> section to the other in the mid-90s they did build a purpose-built build building because the council needed a proper access-friendly place and it's a much right. bigger library now but yeah. it's it's all kind of one room so there's right. that kind of blurring so I think back then there there really wasn't that transition um YA phase mm -hmm. I'm trying to think what I did read I did read some things like um was it Monica Dickens kind of science fictiony type stuff and I I think maybe maybe that was sort of YA and I think I'm trying to think um things like um the tripods was that more kind of upper middle grade or was it more kind of YA I can't quite remember now but I suppose it was more the science fiction that I felt was more mm -hmm. YA because some of the themes in it were a little bit more complex. So if I had to say, were there any YA books, I suppose science fiction would have been my sort of... Your bridge between... Those are, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. would, have been that, would have been that bridge. But there wasn't anything specifically aimed at, this is a book for 15 stroke 16 year olds. Yeah. There definitely wasn't that category back then. I remember reading Judy Bloom. I don't know where, I, I think I probably came across her in the library as well. Um, Probably would have been the closest anyone had I guess to YA back then you know um but yeah that that was pretty much it but she, she was and she was brilliant of course um but I do remember that kind of that that weird jump that you make you know and I read a lot of Victoria not Victoria what's her name Virginia Andrews Virginia Andrews mm. did you ever read her yeah I didn't her, read books but I've heard no, of them yeah if ever there was an, an inappropriate author for children <laughs> and so on 
but yet she had, you know, her books were extremely compelling, but also incredibly weird and probably not the best. But um, but yeah. So I suppose I suppose, the, I suppose that um, Adrian Wall books were specifically yeah, written actually. for a teenage audience. So Maybe I think so. yeah, I think there were a few things starting to. I mean, I know that was earlier that was written. I suppose at the seventies, there were a few things where you had teenage protagonists, and I think those mm-hmm. ones would have been YA books. And I'm trying to think as well. I used to love. Do you ever remember um, things like the Hardy Boys and the Three Investigators? Yeah, I, they I, were my I never read them, absolute but I read them. Yeah, the favorite Hardy books when I was about say nine, ten years old. And I do remember when I was a young teenager that they brought out kind of teenage versions of those. Oh, so right. they had the teenage investigators, and they so it was like set when they were a little bit older, and um, they had a version for the Hardy Boys as well. And compared to the middle grade books, they were dire. <laughs> they were really, really, bad. <laughs> really? Oh no! I just felt it was so much of it was about. Um, I remember the was it the three investigators where it was all about what karate moves they could use on, you know, suspects that they were trying to collar, and it was just, it just felt so forced in a way that the younger books didn't. Like, maybe that's just my maybe becoming more critical as I got older. Yeah. I don't know. Like forced, you're imagining maybe an author trying to force something that he feels or he or she feels would be appropriate for or like like cool for teenagers to read mm-hmm. is that what you mean by forced yeah yeah i think so. yes yeah. yeah that kind of what would a teenager be interested in it's like well we're just interested in the same things it's the adventure that's what drew us to the the books in the first place we don't really care about knowing the exact japanese karate phrase for this <laughs> particular roundhouse kick you know it was, it was all filled with stuff like that <laughs> and i remember just thinking mm, it's just not it's not got the same magic that those middle grade books have. So I think that's what I was looking for. I was looking for that same spark that some of the books that were specifically written for YA um, readers, I just don't think they quite captured that at the time, but that very quickly became a genre. And, yeah. you know, they did discover that spark. I remember reading The Babysitter's Club as well. I think that was one that got passed around school, you know, like so, yeah, somebody would have one book and then somebody else have another and we kind of swap them over you know I don't know if they would be considered YA or upper middle grade either but I love those um I think they've been reissued in recent years and kind of graphic novel versions and there's a I think there's a tv show made of them as well so it's great to see that they're still still around in the in the social sort of consciousness but um I don't know if did you ever did you ever read those or had you ever any I didn't know I no. I was quite restricted to whatever was in the library if it was right. in the library yeah. I read it but if there was a series that they didn't have in like for example I I missed out on Judy Bloom we just didn't oh, yeah. have that in the library at the time so yeah um yeah I don't know whoever was in charge of picking the books I mean they had a really good selection but there were certain things that weren't in there and our secondary school didn't have a library so yeah neither did mine well we, we had a library space with nothing, with nothing in it except desks <laughs> it was where people used to go for detention but there was no actual books in it which is crazy oh, <laughs> anyway. probably a library then if it doesn't yeah, have books no. <laughs> it's kind of the definition we did well, have a room an, an English classroom that had shelving and it had books um, I think for just about my first term in first year of, of secondary school, it was open at lunchtimes, mm-hmm. some lunchtimes and some break times. And I remember thinking, great, I'm going to school with a library. This is going to be my hiding place. <laughs> and I loved it. And then yeah. I, they didn't have a librarian, though. And so I think what must have happened was the teachers didn't want to have to keep giving up their break times and lunchtimes to open it. And so after about you know Christmas, that stopped. And I don't know whether they cleared out the books or whether they needed the space or, or what it was that it just wasn't available ever after that. And I remember asking a few times and it was just, no, we don't have a library. So it really was such a shame yeah. because yeah, I, would, I did love that. I, I found some YA books 
you know, that was where I think, I'm pretty sure it was Monica Dickens, I'm pretty sure she did kind of science fiction-y stuff, and they had those books in there, and I was really excited by that, but yeah, just didn't have access to it after that, so it really just shows you the importance of school libraries, it's not just, not just about reading, it's about giving those quiet kids who don't really mm -hmm. flourish in a playground environment that space that they can go to, that they can just chill out and do the thing they love, which yeah. is reading. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because the school I went to for most of my secondary school was was brand new built when I went into it. So that's probably why there was no books in the library. It was just a space. I think as as time went on, they kind of started building up the stock a bit more. But I never I never remembered school libraries being anywhere that I ever much as I would have loved to, I should say, spend my lunchtime there because I was that kind of kid too who preferred, you know, quiet corners and reading. Um, I don't I don't have any memories of ever being in there other than for perhaps, you know, if there was a free period that we had no, no other no other class to go to, we might sit in there and our homework or whatever um but it's a, it's a pity that there was no space like that but hopefully now in the school that as it exists now hopefully the library is much better but it's important i think you're right to say that every kid in every school deserves a library like a, a library space that they have and, and ideally with a librarian as well to help them you know to, to guide them to the right books at the right times well, that's where it's very concerning in scotland because a lot of the local councils are cutting their secondary school librarians mm -hmm. it's going back the way now because of council cuts so I think it's been three in the last year. They've all lost their school librarians and they've been put into community libraries. Mm -hmm. And I've heard so many stories of that library space being converted into something else. The books are just packed away in boxes and it's then used as a computing lab and then something else. And a lot of students just don't have access to the books. And even when they don't do that, even when the books are still there, because you've got no one curating the books, no one there to sign things in and out. It's not really a library anymore. There will be a couple of kids who will still go and read books because that's what they do. But there are so many kids in the school who need that interface and there's nobody organising school visits then, that kind of thing. It's, yeah. I just don't think councils realise how important libraries are. They think as long as there are books in a school, every child has access. And that's just not the case. A lot of the times it's the librarian who's that interface between the children who maybe otherwise wouldn't come to a library and wouldn't read the books yeah. and you know it's, it's their access point then yeah absolutely so it's it's a real it's a it's a, it's a problem uh, i don't know we have, nobody has i don't think ireland i don't think ireland really is known very well i mean we, i don't know don't know how the many schools in this country even have libraries or librarians i don't even think it's a statutory requirement although i'm prepared to be corrected on that if i'm wrong um but uh, I, I hope it changes you know i hope i hope because i think every kid as you say every kid deserves access and equal access because that's what libraries are all about isn't it giving everybody the same access to the same wealth of knowledge or the bank of knowledge that's there um but um in terms of stories that have influenced you i suppose and, and getting back to the podcast um i'm struck by the fact that you became a teacher um you know, as well as an author like that you that you worked as a teacher as well um, and I wondered what would have inspired you to become a teacher and would, would anything you had ever read or stories you had you had come across have had any part in bringing you down that road in, in your career? I read so many books as a child, it's really difficult to say <laughs> there was this one particular book that yeah. you know, changed the whole course of my life. Um, and I won't particularly say that books made me think of a future career because like I say I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy as well as horror and <laughs> it's not really like and you haven't gone on to know, be an astronaut or a murderer yeah okay. exactly but <laughs> I would say what I think about in terms of shaping my life it was that um hero's journey theme that so many books have you know, like the Hobbit the Lord of the Rings Harry mm -hmm. Potter even yeah. all of those books 
have that um, hero's journey in them. And I think it was that that really influenced my life. Yeah. Because I think I was quite a kind of quiet, shy, kind of late teen, early 20s. And um, but I did really, really want to go on adventures. I had this real thirst for going to another country and learning about the world. And I was one of those kids who used to just pour over um, maps. Mm. You know, you just get like a book of maps. And I would sit for hours just looking at the maps on them. And I think probably more than anything else, it's probably books of maps that really kind of um, influenced me because I, I just seemed like the, those were the places because we didn't have the internet back then, you know, yes. kind of um, I 80s, remember yeah. you know, early 90s. So um, there wasn't really another way of finding out about the rest of the world other than news and books. And um, yeah, I think it was that idea of there's somewhere I can go where I can have an adventure because I'm not going to have an adventure in my own little small town. But if I really want to go and have my hero's journey adventure, it's going to have to be out there somewhere. And when you are quite quiet and shy and don't have a lot of confidence, it's it's quite a big deal. But then you go back to the books and you think, well, Bilbo Baggins didn't want to leave Bag End. You know, yeah. that that's what really kind of inspires you. Those characters who take the leap, who go off and do these things. So, you know, my first job in Cameroon, that was that was really scary when I first I went imagine. out. Yeah. Um, you know, never because I didn't go abroad when I was young my mm -hmm. parents you know, take yeah. us abroad we yeah. went to Ireland every year because my mother's from Northern Ireland so that was oh, every right. every summer and every Christmas we'd spend our fam you know family holiday in Ireland which was wonderful but it's part of the UK so it wasn't really going abroad so I always had it in my head that this was this was my big hero's journey adventure I was going to go abroad and it certainly felt like that you know quite quite a big upheaval but absolutely life-changing in terms of um, what you learn about the world, what you learn about yourself and your own abilities, you know. So definitely, yeah. If you're going to get anything from books, get the hero's journey because if you're going to live your life, you know, to the full, then you really need to, you know, heed that call to adventure. Brilliant. That's if ever there was a quote <laughs> for <laughs> for anyone, that's amazing. Heed the call to adventure. It's fantastic. Um, and and what what did you what did you teach when you were when you taught when you worked in a Cameroon? Was it English or what was the subject? No, my first degree was in physics. You know, wow. um, you want oh to be gosh. a children's author, so you go and do science. No, <laughs> brilliant I, though. Yeah, um, I guess yeah, the, I, the science fiction was always a theme in your in your reading. There was, so, yeah. I think there was, there was science fiction in there, and I was a huge huge Star Trek fan as a teenager oh, yeah, I had a very very big thing for data from Star Trek the next generation which is probably too much information but you know all oh, the other so all the other so girls good. were in to take that and boy bands no, no for me it was, I for me totally it was data get it. from Star I Trek data, yeah. Yeah. I was one of those teens you know yeah. so yeah. <laughs> I think it was partly that idea of um, living in this kind of um, science fiction-y type world and yeah. then I got to university and I was just I was bored out of my mind because all I wanted to do was stay at home and read Jane Austen <laughs> which should have been a big wake-up call you are doing the wrong subject but um yeah I don't regret it I don't regret doing a science subject because um I think it it opened other doors and it was it was an interesting experience doing something that was something I maybe didn't do at home I read fiction at home I read a lot of at the time I was really into literary fiction you know Austin the Brontes Charles Hart uh, Thomas Hardy those kind of people Charles Dickens um so that was my kind of what I did at university I would go in sometimes for lectures and learn about quantum physics and atoms and I did was doing astronomy as well that's where the Star Trek came in 
Amazing. And we'd go into the lab and I'd be thinking, oh yes, we're going to look at planets and things. And we'd be sitting in these dingy little labs measuring the luminosity of light bulbs and things. And I'd just be thinking, this this isn't what they do in Star Trek. What, <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> but um, I think because it gave me that opportunity to go to Cameroon, I think that was where I felt like, oh no, this was the right thing to do. Because I wanted to do English literature um and history those were my favorite subjects but at the time the kind of mid to late se- uh, 70s 90s i'm not that old <laughs> there was a real push get girls into stem get them into stem careers which was fine but um i was sort of pushed a little bit away from the humanities you know oh, it's a bit soft you don't want to do that you want to do the hard subjects mm-hmm. which yeah i think when i was so overwhelmingly obvious that i should have been doing you know um, writing or something or literature that wasn't maybe the best thing but um just being able to do that and having that difference from what I was maybe reading at home and then going into university and having something different was it was a good thing but um I wanted to go to China to teach English right. going back to your question of you know did mm-hmm. I teach English I did for my second year summer I went to China to teach English for six seven weeks and it was absolutely fantastic so I'd applied to VSO just as I was coming up to leave university to teach English in China and they looked at my CV and said oh you've got a physics degree we're not going to send you to China to teach English we need you know physics and maths teachers in Africa will you go there I thought oh that wasn't my plan I really want to go to China but you know again that hero's journey thing you know just take the opportunities as they come up so that was where I ended up um, in Cameroon teaching maths and science so Wow. Yeah. How long did you spend there? Two years. Yeah. Two years. Um, Amazing. Yeah, that's their kind of standard. Well, at the time, it's very, very different now, but at the time, it was a standard um, two years. And it, funnily enough, it, you know, people go, oh, two whole years. It didn't feel like two whole years. It feels like it went by in a flash, and yet it was so all consuming. Mm-hmm. You know, I still have dreams. Even like more than 20 years later, I still have dreams about being back in Cameroon. It really was very a definitive part of my life. Yeah, I suppose it was a, it was a, a like an influential time in your life as well. You know, that time when you're, you're kind of forming the person you're going to become when you, when you become a, a fully blown adult, I suppose. What an amazing experience to have had. Um, I just I'm, I'm amazed with or I'm, I'm here with blown away with admiration for your ability to do physics. And, you know, I, I would have loved to do that, but I didn't have the maths brain I didn't I wasn't able to get the concept like I I just I remember the teacher we had in school for physics was also a math teacher and I remember telling him I wanted to do physics for my final year and he kind of looked at me as if to say it's not going to happen <laughs> you know because you just don't have you don't have the basics you know that you need for for to do physics but I love well, the I concepts that's behind funny. it when you know? people say they yeah. don't have a math brain it's like no what you didn't have was the right math teacher at the right well, time yes, to teach yes. you the foundations to give you the confidence it's the same with reading you know a number of people say oh I'm not a strong reader it's mm-hmm. like, it was because there wasn't that person around at that form during that formative phase to give you the confidence that you can go ahead and do it I don't really believe there's people with math brains and reading brains or whatever you know I think it's partly interest but also partly just having that teacher there at the right phase I was lucky I had some you know really good maths teachers early on so I felt confident when it came to doing the maths and it's the same with reading you know if you've yeah. got the right person teaching you the right skills at the right time then when you get up to those exam years you don't have that fear of it and I think a lot especially with mathematics people develop a fear of it and it's not their own fault it's because they haven't had the basics you know instilled into them at the right time so yeah. No, perhaps yeah I mean I do I think there is something in that like I mean I, I probably didn't have 
a great teacher as such but well I mean I'm not going to say that in case he's listening sorry sir if you're <laughs> listening um you know he was he was a good teacher if you were if you were if you had maths ability but I just feel I know I was talking to my friend about this a while ago actually just for some reason they came up in conversation but it felt like but it feels to me when I think about maths when I think about you know especially complicated maths or anything that kind of goes beyond basic sort of level it's like my brain just turns into static on a radio or just like fuzz, you know there's nothing there like there's a big void you know but it's but but concepts really interest me and I, I always was fascinated by space and fascinated by the concepts behind physics you know like you know, atoms and you know all that kind of thing but I never I just I, I really regret that I didn't have the ability to sort of uh, study it in, in depth and I and did I, I I indeed English and history were my two things as well and you were saying you, you enjoyed those two subjects that's what I did for my own degree um you know but uh, it would have been in another life I probably would have been a physicist <laughs> if I had had the uh, if I had the, the right kind of you know ability to bridge that that gap of of, uh, of knowledge in my in my head um so maybe maybe someday in my maybe in my retirement I'll go back and uh, and revisit my my physics dreams <laughs> I might I might ring you and say hi teach me some physics Victoria <laughs> I think it is the stories that really is part of that I mean I wasn't really interested in you know working out pressures and stars and all of that kind of thing and the spin of various atoms I, I, I didn't really that wasn't what captured my imagination so it was the stories you know what mm. happens when you get close to a black hole it was probably the same sort of thing as you is yeah, those exactly. stories that, and I realized I'm not really interested in the subject himself I'm interested in the stories around the, the subject yeah. what can that's you do as a science yeah. fiction writer that's yeah. what interested me so I'd be sitting there you know, the teacher would introduce a concept and I'd be off in my head making up a story and they'd be <laughs> writing equations in the blackboard that made no sense to me whatsoever. Yeah, I didn't yeah, care. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. wanted to take this concept and go and write a story. So it's probably the same as you. So I, probably, I wouldn't say yeah. that you missed out doing a science subject. I mean, yeah. it's 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 really just the ideas from it. Yeah, that I, were I, biology. I enjoyed biology too. <laughs> but yeah, but I, that's actually a very good point. I never thought of it, but you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, when it comes down to it, you know, doing a physics as a subject, you're not, you're not, you're not off dreaming about stars and planets. You're as you say, you're calculating the spin of an atom or you're, you know, you're doing something really, you know, quite maybe mind-numbingly dim, you know, at the time. But that is all, it's all really important for your subject, but it's not, it's not the the large imaginative space that you might have imagined it to be. Yeah, that's really true. So, okay, I feel much better about my life now. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, we always, we all end up where we're meant to be, I think, anyway. I think I've ended up by a very circuitous route I've come to where I needed to be in life anyway so that's that's all good <laughs> you've ended up talking to me you're thinking oh what have I done with my life <laughs> <laughs> I have the career I dreamt of I dreamt of as a kid and I do this wonderful podcast where I get to meet wonderful people like you so I mean <laughs> life can't get much better than that um and why do you think you became an or when you became an author why do you think it was children's books that you gravitated towards and children's and YA books um Hmm. I wasn't initially planning on becoming a children's author to be yeah. honest <laughs> when I was growing up I think I decided for definite I was going to be an author as a teenager but back then you know you're a bit naive at that age you oh, think yes I'm, yes I'm going to be you know I still a famous am. musician I'm probably going to have my own band yeah. I'm probably going to go and work for NASA at the same time yeah. and, and you be know, a model in my spare time yeah, 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 yeah. things yeah <laughs> do a bit of acting you know <laughs> spare time do this that the next thing you know yeah. I, I remember spending my summer between school and university in writing musical because I thought I was going to be the next Andrew Lloyd Webber and I did do quite a lot of songs and things I, I wrote them all down because I, I loved composing at that time that was another thing I was going to be oh, a composer oh my in my God. spare time wow. and um, and I started writing my first novel 
hymn that was absolutely dire it took me five years to write <laughs> and then it was part of a, a trilogy and um, I ended up writing the rest of the trilogy it's sitting in a drawer somewhere um, but I always thought I was going to be a science fiction and fantasy and horror writer especially the horror I had a real sort of love of that at that age and um, but I think what it was when I was in Cameroon someone had the Harry Potter books over with them because the volunteers would all meet up um, and I read Harry Potter for the first time out in Cameroon and I was I just loved it it brought back all of my memories of absolutely adoring children's fiction when I was seven eight nine ten and all of that excitement and I hadn't I hadn't expected that from a children's book because I'd, I'd gone back and read a couple that I'd loved as a child and you know you're quite disappointed by them quite often when you read them as an adult you you remember them in in your head as this all-consuming world that you would just spend all day daydreaming about and then you go back and read the actual book and it seemed quite small and simple in comparison to what it had become in your head harry potter wasn't like that harry potter was this absolutely amazing world that as an adult you could go off and invent your own stories and i kind of thought that's what i want to do yeah th this is my genre this is what i want to do with books so yeah i really do think harry potter was probably the the bridging thing for me as an adult but there were stories i think from my my childhood that stuck in my head yeah. that did influence my own writing i think in terms of certain scenes i don't know if you ever remember we were reading there was a patricia st john book called treasures of the snow no, and it was a story i remember my mother reading us one christmas we were actually over in ireland at the time and um it was a story and i won't go into the details of the story but basically there was a revenge aspect of it where the boy did something really really bad and the other female lead character couldn't forgive him for it and she went off on her own kind of revenge rampage and it really really stuck in my head how powerful that was and that influenced a couple of the scenes in the boy with the butterfly mind where there's a kind of um set for attack kind of revenge thing going on before the characters can sort of come to an understanding right. and I think that there's certain scenes from books that are so powerfully stick in your mind and you start riffing off that as an adult in your own books and even John Wyndham's The Chrysalids I loved his books they were brilliant but that was such a powerful book but there was something about the ending that didn't quite sit right with me in the end people come from this city and, and they save the group that has managed to make this journey and there was something about that ending. I won't tell you what it is because it will spoil the book. If, you know, it's too I'm much of a spoiler. But um, <laughs> yeah. just for anyone who has read the book, the ending wasn't quite right. And so for my debut YA novel, the, the story has got nothing to do with the chrysalids, but the ending is sort of like inspired by that. But I've changed it to but make it the way that I wanted it. it to be. Yeah, it's like I've Brilliant. fixed the yeah. ending. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think sometimes when you have a story like that that sits in, in your mind and it sits at the back of your mind and kind of percolates over many many years you can end up writing a book that's got absolutely nothing to do with the book that you've read but there's this little plot point that you just want to change or tweak and maybe not make better but make it into the way that you wanted that story to be yeah. and I think that's where a lot of books can you know if you read lots and lots of books like that all of the little elements come together in your own writing and you don't even realize you're doing it sometimes yeah. it's only when yeah. you really go back afterwards and you do things like podcasts or you do questions and answers and it's as you're talking things over, you realise, oh, that's oh, I was trying to yeah, do with yeah, that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's not great. And we often find that in doing our podcast here that um, uh, 
as guests talk to us, they kind of, God, you know, I haven't thought about this for 20 or 30 years. And here I am now thinking about it. And it's amazing. And now I see all these connections. And I love that. It's, as I always say, it's a privilege to be with somebody when they're having that moment of kind of realization of, oh, wow, all the threads of my life are coming together. And now I see, I see why I'm, why I'm here or why I wrote that story. It's, it's an amazing thing. Um, and do you think you'll ever go back to, or maybe do you think you'll ever write a book that has horror in it if it was something that fascinated you so much when you were younger oh I think so at some point I mean I did do um a novella last year that was a spooky ghost story because I loved ghost stories I was really hooked on kind of the Victorian gothic tales you know Emma James and those kind of things I really loved that kind of particular era not so much the modern ones more the kind of there was something about Victorian gothic that I just totally got into um, so I did have a novella out last year, The Haunting Scent of Poppies, that was a kind of um, World War One inspired kind of um, spooky to- story. So definitely there will be ghost stories coming in the future. And I'm sure there'll be a little bit of horror in there. Not the kind of slasher horror. Mm. You know, I, I think it was more the psychological horror that I was right. into. Okay. I think probably more ghost stories than anything else will be my thing um I think the horror was a kind of psychological element but you can get that in ghost stories as well but um yeah. there's something about autumn in Scotland in particular there's something about the autumns here that really it's the mists is it yeah. yeah 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 something like that because I, I find so many of my books are set around Halloween yeah my favorite time of year I love Halloween actually yeah yeah probably just I just love the weather around them but I also I really love Halloween it's my favorite sort of festival if that's the word you know our favorite holiday season I really like really love it it's so atmospheric yeah there's something about leaves turning and that crisp smell I don't maybe it's sort of tied in your memory as well to that thing of starting a new year of school I mean I hated school so it's not really good memory but there's that feeling of something new happening a lot of people talk about summer is that feeling of oh there's something new new is happening because it's summer I don't get that in summer I always find summer's a bit of a limbo period yeah like kind of like an in-between yeah. or even the end of something because like yeah she said like the end of one school year and then the beginning of mm-hmm. another yeah yeah that, yeah I know well I liked school I didn't hate school I mean I was happy enough in school um but yeah that's probably what it is like a start the, the beginnings of a new year but um I just yeah, I love Halloween um and besides MR James or the kind of those kind of do you have any other standout ghost stories or spooky books that you would have read that you really remember well or want to emulate or want to rewrite <laughs> I think I'd like to try and bridge that gap between adult spooky stories and children's stories. Yeah. I think that's a really difficult thing to do. Getting stories that are spooky, but not so spooky that you scare the hell out of kids. <laughs> I do I do remember my mother again picking some ghost stories and reading them to me and my brothers. And I don't know, there was, there was something really spooky about one of them I remember particularly. It was a really simple story. It was about this boy who kept um, being afraid of the cellar. You know, he didn't yeah. want to go near oh, it and his parents were trying you to get him me, You have me scared already. <laughs> I know. And yeah. it, was so, it was so, so simple. And um, the boy ended up getting locked in the cellar because his parents were trying to kind of teach him a lesson. And I mean, I can't remember. It must have only been a really, really short story, but it really stuck in my head. And of course, yeah. you get to yeah. the ending where he's banging on the door, screaming to get out, and then he goes quiet. And then oh, the no. parents kind of, you know, open the door and the boy's kind of, you know, dead. And there's a scratch mark all down, but there's spooky things in there. And you know, those kind of stories really kind of stick in my head. And I think, well, was that story really appropriate for kids or was it because we've been read so many stories that, you know, <laughs> my mother thought, it's fine, they'll, they'll handle it. Yeah. 
I don't know. So I would quite like to try and do spooky stories for kids because you know you know what it's like as an author yourself. It's there's a certain amount you can get away with in kids' books, and then above that it becomes a YA book, and above yeah. that again it becomes you know an adult book. Mm. So if you're trying to write for a particular age group, it's really difficult getting that balance right. So at the moment I can certainly write ghost stories for adults, but whether I'll ever be able to really bridge that gap. I don't know. It's something I maybe I, would like if, to experiment in future. Anybody can do it. You can do it. Um, and have you ever written for adults? Or are you? Are, have you ever published something for adults? Um, or as well? Um, well, yeah, just that short novella last year. Oh, that was that in, was, an adult. Yeah, that book, was, was it the that was, that was for adults. That ghost story. So right, okay. I think I will. I would like to kind of do more stuff for adults. It's something I think for my next projects in future, I would certainly like to get into um, writing stuff for adults because I I do love historical fiction. And um, I would really like to get into certain periods of history um, in a much more in-depth way than you can yeah. really do for children's books. Because there's, there's only so much you can put in a children's book before it starts to become kind of that didactic teaching little info dump kind of thing. So I'd really like to explore something and really get to get my teeth into it in an adult book. Um, and you said earlier that you were writing a book that was set in Roman Roman Britain or Roman... Yeah, Roman Scotland, say, yeah. yeah. Roman Scotland. Uh-huh. Well, it's news to me that there was Roman Scotland. I thought there was no Roman Scotland. That just got well, with the Antonine Wall, right? I was thinking that yeah, Scotland, had you, yes. did you not build a wall to keep out the to keep out the Romans. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, it, it wasn't to keep out the Romans. It was the Romans were basically trying to keep out the Scottish oh, tribes the from coming they were, down. Yeah, true. They were just like, yes. oh, these barbarians, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we keep them out the empire. So yeah, the, yeah, they built it right across. And my hometown was one of the forts on wow, that. Amazing. So yeah. um, we did a lot of Roman work and. Um, our primary school um, yeah, so you remember, seem to remember spending hours colouring in Roman attire and we went to visit little bits of the wall and we had this lovely we still have it, this little museum um, called the Old Kirk Museum very, very Tam O'Shanter <laughs> um, and they used to put on all sorts of things for kids, they used to have open days for kids and they had uh, Roman costumes and you could try on Roman costumes and they'd show you old fashioned you know the carding, roll carding and old-fashioned right, yeah. eating, all of that kind of thing. Brilliant. So I think growing up, I had this real kind of connection to the town in terms of its history. So I always wanted to write about the history of the town. That sounds lovely. Yeah. And I think as well, that particular story that's coming out in September, I think because I kind of, I loved the hometown when I was very small, but I hated secondary school. So I had mm. this, I thought a lot of teenagers get this thing, you know, you kind of, so we would say scunnered against the town, you know, you're sort of like, you don't really you don't really want to stay there you're just kind of sick of it and you just want to go off and have adventures and you think you know you never go back you never do these things and I think as an adult you know thinking back over it there was so much good in there I think this this sort of book in some ways is kind of like my my love letter to my the town that I grew up in oh, you know it's kind yeah. of saying you know there are so many good bits in this and here's all my best memories of childhood you know the hills are in there the rivers in there yeah. even some of the even some of the place names are in there Brilliant. Well, I think sometimes that's the great thing about books as an adult. You get to revisit some of your childhood things and use them. And see them with a with a more nostalgic and a more appreciative uh, eye, maybe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I read recently a book by uh, brilliant Ali Sherrick, who's uh, one of the queens of historical middle grade fiction, but she wrote, her most recent one is uh, Vita and the Gladiators, which mm-hmm. is, you know, set in Roman, Roman Britain or Roman London. Um, really, really amazing. And, you know, quite quite dark and not, well, not maybe not dark but quite like I mean it doesn't shy away from from violence and from sort of you know from the less I suppose um 
uh, I don't know, less less sanitized, I suppose, versions of, of stories you might get in some kids' books. You know, that it's you really feel that you, you smell the you smell the sweat and you you can feel the violence and you can, you know, it's all there. So I, I mean, I, I hope that you you, you uh, if you haven't read her book, um, maybe it would be great. It it's in the middle uh, of my to be yeah. read pile, you know, because yeah, <laughs> your pile yeah. just gets higher and higher, but it isn't there. Yeah. Um, you never, you never get to yeah, the bottom of the TV yeah. pile, yeah. Um, just because it really, to me, it shows what what you can do, you know, what you can achieve with a children's book, especially when it's when it's got the same setting as the one that you're you're writing. Um, I love I love historical fiction too. But do you, do you have any recommendations for historical fiction that you like particularly, or for adults, or for kids, or for any age group? Um, I've got a few historical fiction in my TBR pile at the moment. Um, I'm going to be reading very soon Barbara Henderson's Rivet Boy. That's oh, been yeah, I heard of that. It's been, it's been getting closer and closer to the top. So, yeah, that, that's the next historical fiction I'm going to read. That's one about the Borth Road Bridge being built. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that because I do like Scottish stories. You know, there are stories in Scotland yeah, yeah, that tell yeah. stories of Scottish things. Um, yeah, Barbara does a lot of um, brilliant historical fiction. Scotland yeah so that's that's my next historical fiction read. Brilliant awesome well it's on my list it's on my TBR file too or virtually um, but I'm going to get it this sounds like a lovely book I read about it um, and just a question we always like to ask our guests as well is that um, do you have any hopes or how how would you hope that your stories uh, would shape your readers I mean do you ever does it ever does it ever do you, do you ever think about that when you're writing or is it something that you just you know it doesn't it's not a it's not a going concern as you're writing your book but uh maybe as you look back over your your body of work that you've created so far and the, and the work that you're looking to create in the future how would you what would you hope that a, a reader of your work would take away from from your work or how would you hope it shapes mm. the readers of the future again it's a little bit difficult to say because i i don't really go into writing a book with the reader in mind i know that's a little bit selfish but i think all authors are kind of like that where you just have to write the story that's in your head that excites you of course you know i I don't tend to think about the impact um on a reader until it's done Mm -hmm. and then of course you know as a former teacher i'm starting to think of resource packs and things but i think more than more than the actual story itself what i hope kids you know, we'll get from my books is the school visits, you know, especially going to kind of local schools around Glasgow, because it's something I felt we didn't really have when I was when I was a teenager. I went to the kind of bog standard local secondary school that didn't have alumni, didn't have, you know, you go to this school and you can become this, that and the next thing. But there was none of that. You know, you, you just go to this school and you're just going to go and have an ordinary life and there was no idea even of oh you can go and achieve your dreams or anything it was it didn't really feel like that it just felt like you know you go to the school and that's it just, just get in get out, get your GCSEs yeah. and goodbye so, type of thing yeah yeah and <laughs> your so when I go into schools I sort of I want to inspire kids to be like no you go to a local school and you can go off and achieve your dreams my dream was to be a writer and look it's achievable and I think that's what I want for my stories more than anything else maybe not the actual storyline itself but maybe just like the finished product of being able to say to a kid look yeah. you've got your own stories you've got your own um ideas and the pawn shop of stolen dreams is probably the best example because when i go into my school talk we're actually talking about daydreams and then i talk about their actual dreams you know because burble in the story which you've read the sack baby mm-hmm. or the sack boy he's got his dream of having a home and a family mm-hmm. so i'll say to kids you know what, what is it you dream about what is your dream and then i'll talk them through the idea of you know the wishing well where in order to get something out of washing well you have to you know you have to give something you give a coin so what's the coin representing it's representing the idea of sacrificing something in order to get your dreams 
you know, so we can talk through the idea of if you want to be an author, what do you have to sacrifice? Well, you've got to sacrifice a heck of a lot of time and a lot of kind of <laughs> not quite blood, but certainly sweat and tears, you know, to get there <laughs> as an yeah. author and face so much rejection. You know, that that's the sacrifice involved. So we'll talk about, you know, if you want to be a footballer, if you want to be a doctor, you know, what do you have to sacrifice? And I think it's maybe just that idea of using stories or using my books as a means of saying to kids, look, you can go to doesn't matter what school you go to you don't have to go to some fancy school some expensive school some private school you can go to just your ordinary local comprehensive school and you can still go out there and achieve the thing you want to do as long as you're willing to kind of you know put in the effort and you know have a bit of luck along the way because we certainly all know that it's not just doesn't matter about talent or effort sometimes it can just be you know the luck of the draw but that's part of life as well you have to sort of accept that as part of the equation you know, the, so pers- yeah, the perseverance. Sorry. Yeah, the perseverance. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. just yeah, just saying that's kind of really just the sum of it is that's what I want kids to take away. I want to take away that idea of um, just go and do the thing you want to do. You know, put the work in, and hopefully you'll have a bit of luck. <laughs> that's fantastic. Absolutely, I, I have a very similar philosophy when I'm talking to kids in schools as well about you know. I always show them pictures of my own childhood and not, not that I grew up in a cardboard box or anything like that, but I mean, I didn't grow up in a fancy place, <laughs> you know, and the pictures make it clear like that I had a very ordinary childhood in a very, with a very ordinary, in a very ordinary town, you know, and just like them most of the time, you know, and I kind of go like, it doesn't matter that you're not from, we'll say Dublin or somewhere posh, you know, um, you can achieve whatever you want to achieve if uh, if you have a dream, you know, and if you work, as you say, I'm going to, that's a really good idea though, this, what are you willing to sacrifice for your for your dream to come true you know and yeah if you're willing to sort of put the work in and try and try and be be prepared to fail as well and be prepared to mm-hmm. not get it right um but not give up you know i think that's really important and i think the look is is vital too but i mean your your look it doesn't matter how much look you have if you don't stick with it you know you, you never know when your look is going to turn i suppose if you persevere long enough hopefully the look will will come as well well, certainly that's one of those that's famous that's golfers said, you know, was it, was it Jack Nicholas who said something along the lines of, you know, someone saying, oh, you're so lucky or something. And people, you would say, you know, well, from where I practice, the luckier I seem to get. <laughs> no, it's Brilliant. that's very yeah. true. And it comes to writing, yeah. the more books that you write, the higher your chances of actually getting that book deal. You know, yeah. if you write one book and it, this is your baby and you're not willing to yeah, move exactly. on from that and write something else. I mean, this is why I write in so many different genres because it did take me a long time to get my first book deal. So I had to write so many different books, try so many different things. But in the end, you're left in a stronger position because then you've you got these skills. to offer at the end yeah. of all of this rejection period or whatever yeah. you've got, then something you can really kind of offer. But yeah. I do think a lot of the time we talk to kids, you hear a lot of teachers talking to kids about you can be anything, you can do anything, and you just, you know, it's going to magically sort of happen, happen for you. Yeah, no, you, you need you know? to put the work in. Yeah. And yeah. I think they, they miss out that little <laughs> all important thing. <laughs> it's about the work, it's about the perseverance, it's also about luck, but, you know, it's also really about kind of sticking with it through the rejection. Yeah. Because rejection is a hard thing to deal with. I mean, you know, yes. as an author yourself, it's, yes. it's the worst part of the job. And it, it doesn't matter hard. how many books you've got yeah. out there, you still get rejected. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, how many books can you or can you remember? How many books did you write before you got your first deal or how, how long did it take you to get there? I think The Fox Girl and the White Gazelle, if you count all of my books that I completed, including the one I started when I was 18, you know, because it was, it was my <laughs> yeah, first completed count it, book. Absolutely. Yeah. The Fox Girl and the White Gazelle was my 13th, I think. Oh my so when people talk about your debut novel, 
like never, yes, never the first it was my debut published mm -hmm. novel, but it certainly yeah. wasn't my first book. You know, <laughs> I've been around for a long while before that. Um, and have you ever kind of cannibalized any of your unpublished work for ideas for your published books, or well, a lot of that unpublished the... work is now published. You know, and it's it's in the right. publishing work. Brilliant. So a lot of a lot of that work, you know, people say, "Oh, you're so prolific." It's like, oh no, it's because a lot of these books I've been working on for years. It just happened to be that one, my thirteenth was the one, but now the twelfth, the eleventh, the tenth, the ninth. You know, they're they've all been published as well. So, yeah, I mean, well, certainly, fantastic. I would say my my first my first four books were unpublishable. Because right, the first yes. first three were a trilogy <laughs> that were a rambling mess, but they they really were my practice novels. Mm -hmm. The fourth one had the right idea, but it was really badly executed. But after that, I really started to kind of oh figure out what I was doing. What you were doing, yeah, yeah, fantastic. That's amazing. That's great. Really good to hear that. So I mean, no work is ever wasted. Is the message from that? You know, I always absolutely try yeah. to remember that as well. You know, even when a, a book might get published, but you learn something from writing it. You know, and you never know when a little seed of an idea that you might have missed not not misused but you know didn't quite get it to work in the previous version of a story you might go oh that might work here and you know it might fit into the book that you're currently working on um and let me see um okay so and what stories are shaping you right now if i'm allowed to ask what are you reading currently um i have as most authors do, an enormous to be read pile. So yeah, Barbara Henderson's Rivet Boy is on that. Yeah. Um, Lindsay Hen Lindsay Lefelson's Euro Spies is on that because oh, yeah. I love Lindsay's work. She's absolutely fantastic. So anything that she writes, that goes straight to the top of my to be read pile. <laughs> I've got Justin Davies' book on my to be read pile. His Harville that looks really good. Um, looking forward to that one. So it's got a bit of um, bit of fantasy in there, I think. And I'm halfway through, or more than halfway through, H.S. Norrup's Into the Fairy Hill. Oh, it's Fairy Hill. Absolutely brilliant. So I'm really, really enjoying that. I'm going to be very sad when I get to the end of that. I'm, I'm trying to read it slowly. It's one of those books where you're trying to read in little sips to kind of make it last. You know, yeah. like when you had sweets as a kid, you would like suck it really slowly. Yes. Um, <laughs> and obviously, just recently, I read your absolutely brilliant um, The Silver Road. I was oh very happy to be able to read that in advance. Absolutely fantastic. So for anyone who is well, well done for getting this far, if you've managed to sit through the whole podcast <laughs> and be wobbling, but if you have, <laughs> you'll be rewarded by being told, go and read Sinead's into um, the Silver Road because it's just this wonderful blend of Irish folk tales um, with a modern character. And that's what I loved about it, that blend of the kind of the old and the new. Yeah. all of the magic in it I love this idea of bringing the magic back I love those kind of books yeah. where you've got a, a modern character who's got access to the old magic that's definitely the hero's journey right there I mean that's, that's a master class in the hero's journey that you've oh written. god stop it I shall, <laughs> I, shall, I shall blush but thank you so much yeah no I was delighted that uh, so, so many people that I really respect and admire including yourself were able to read uh, early versions of that or draft you know proof versions of it um so it's coming in September, book fans. So if you want to pre-order, by all means do. Um, <laughs> this is a road by me. Um, but yeah, no, that was one of my one of it was one of my writerly ambitions actually to write a book like that. You know, where you have you know the old magic and the new magic, or the old sorry, the old magic and coming into the new world. Um, do you have any writerly ambitions that you haven't fulfilled yet with your with your books or anything that you dream of working on that you haven't done yet? Definitely the next things, well, certainly not the next published things, but the next projects, which will be, you know, years to work on. Sure. <laughs> I've, got, I've got several, I've got a trilogy and I've got uh, several sequels that I need to get through first. But in the coming years, ghost stories. 
I, I want to get back to I want to get back to ghost stories. You know, I it's just such a, a genre that I absolutely love. So I think that's certainly going to be one of the things. And then in the more kind of long term future, in the years to come, yeah, adult historical fiction. That's sort of sort of my aim. That's I've got a couple go. of ideas that have been, you know, percolating in the back of my head over the years, and then. Yeah, I really just, I really want the time, but I think at the moment, you know, certainly with four books coming out this year and all of the marketing and all the school visits that go around that, I'm trying to find time to write the books I'm contracted to write at the moment. That's that's proving hard to timetable, so never mind the, you know, experimenting with new stuff. That's going to have to wait for a time when things are a little bit less busy, but I'm certainly not complaining about busyness <laughs> at the moment. It's where I want to be. It's a perfect position. And I'm really, really delighted for your success. That's amazing. Um, and would that we were all could be so prolific and so busy. Um, but I'm really, really delighted that you're you're having such success. Um, your books are fantastic, and I know anything I've read by you, I've really, really enjoyed. So, um, more power to your elbow, as we say in this country. Well, um, you have two books coming out this year, so I mean that was that was yeah. fantastic, and your Kindsider book was fantastic. Chance. So, thank you very much. Yeah, that I mean that that was an amazing one of these amazing coincidences of fate or whatever you know to have two coming out in the same year I've done probably won't ever happen again but um but it's great I think maybe COVID had something to do with that though with all the books kind of maybe getting bumped a little bit ahead or yeah you know. also I'm not sure what the reason was um but yeah it could be easily I think it's, everything went a bit off kilter for a while didn't it um with the pandemic but um we are coming up now to our hour of chat which I can't believe has passed again I never I every time we do this I kind of go how has it been an hour I'm looking at the clock going that can't have happened <laughs> Where did the time go? Sure, the time powder has been here snipping time away. Um, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, we have to we have to wrap things up. But I just want to say thank you so much uh, for being here with well with me today. Um, sadly, Susan can't be with us today, but uh, she's here in spirit. Um, and uh, we I'm sure she would have loved to speak to you because it would have been a wonderful conversation for her as well. But uh, it's been great for me. So I I got you all to myself. So I'm doubly happy so it's great um but thank you Victoria for being here and for sharing all the insights about your own work and about your life and about your stories that have shaped you um it's been a joy and I hope you've hope you've enjoyed it well um, thanks very much for having me on I really appreciate being invited absolutely welcome it's great and to you story shape fans um I hope you've enjoyed this episode um I hope you have because frankly this is the best podcast on the airwaves and uh, if you have enjoyed the episode please do uh, take time to give us a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts um, including in Spotify, where you can just click a button and give us some feedback right in your app um, with, with very little effort involved. Um, so please do take the time to do that if you can. We appreciate every new uh, set of ears on the podcast. Um, and uh, thanks so much for being with us. And again, just one more time, thank you very much, Victoria. Um, and we shall see you all next week with our brand new guest. Um, and until then, farewell and adieu, my dear story-shaped fans. Goodbye from me, Sinead O'Hart, and goodbye from... Victoria Williamson. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. You have been listening to Story Shaped with Susan Cahill and Sinead O'Hart. Follow us on Twitter at Story Shaped Pod. And don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts. <laughs>